0: All right, so yeah, the notes are going around. Um, if you do have your Bibles, uh, we're going to go to Matthew 19, Matthew 19. So this is our last message, actually, in our summer series called Encountering Jesus. Uh, you may have been um, with us for the whole time, maybe just a few of the sermons, um, but it's been really good. Um, I know that Alessandra has said that, Francis has said that as well. It's been really good just to be in the gospels here in Beacon. It's been a while since we've done that. uh, Just to see Jesus, um, how he would talk and how he would basically do life. Tonight we're gonna see Jesus with someone who, in many ways, resembles us, resembles you guys as college students. This man goes to church, he knows the Bible. Uh, He's serious about keeping God's commands. Uh, In fact, you'd see him at a church like Lighthouse leading worship. I mean, he'd be leading a family small group. He'd be on staff, even in the youth ministry, maybe. He's young. He's in his 20s, maybe in his 30s. He's ambitious, respectable. He's someone you would admire, someone others would look up to. He's pretty well off financially, makes six figures. He owns a three-bedroom house in Torrance. And he gives to the church, gives liberally, gives also to the charity. And he's talented, he's likable, respectful, certainly of his elders at this church and and those who are older than him. And he cares about something that you and I really care about and something very important to him. And that's eternal life. And this is someone that you would want to be like. Now, this man that I'm speaking of and that Jesus talks to is the rich young ruler. If you're in the chapter, chapter 19, it's verses 16 to 30. Now, I painted the picture the way I did to show that this rich young ruler is not so different from us. In fact, he could be even among us. In many ways, we are similar. But there is an eternal difference between those who are merely religious and those who follow Christ. There is an eternal difference between those who want to earn eternal life by their goodness and those who realize that they can't and instead receive eternal life. And I think uh, many of us are familiar with the rich young ruler and we might instinctively think that we are not like him. You know, we wouldn't turn away. In fact, we haven't turned away from following Jesus. I mean, we are presently following him. But even so, even as believers, the sins that we have once forsaken for Christ, and and yes, even the good gifts of God, they can continue to compete with Christ and our allegiance to him. That's why Paul speaks to the believers in Corinth. He says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He's saying that the subtlety of idols and deceit is real. It's hard to notice, but they can lead our minds astray from loyalty, from pure loyalty to Christ. That's why Paul also says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. <clears throat> now all around us are people, including your peers in college, with pursuits in life. Pursuits that are not what we are pursuing. Now, they are actively and ambitiously pursuing things in life, goals and dreams and ambitions, all that can Influence us and divert us from really seeking to please God as the greatest thing. And finally, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance. The grip of sin can be strong. It can be so close to our hearts And even if it's not outright sin, there are things that weigh us down so that you're no longer running for Christ. Instead, you find yourself running for your own ambition to make a name for yourself, or you're running for the pleasures of this world, for what's entertaining, for what's fun, for for stuff that make your life comfortable. You find yourself running to achieve and accomplish and attain building up your resume, your portfolio, so that you would find security and rest not in Christ and his provision, but in a decent job, a stable income, a good community. That is, that becomes your ultimate source of security and rest. <clears throat> and so this is why even as believers, we need to see Jesus with this rich young ruler. And we need to hear what Jesus says to Peter and the other disciples, we need to let the word of God speak into our lives so that we examine for ourselves, you know, what are those things that we might find harder to give up for Christ? And we need to be convinced that it is far better to give up all and to give up what it might be dearest to our hearts and to follow Christ. So that is the key idea, Um, you can see in your notes, the key idea of this passage. Following Christ is far better than clinging to anything else. Um, This passage, verses 16 to 30, 30, um, we're going to break this up into two parts, the tragedy and the reward. And so let me pray for us as we read God's word. Father, we come humbly, we come asking that you would search our hearts and that you would let your word do its work um, to convict where there is sin, to give hope and encouragement where there is discouragement, uh, to give life for all of us in this room. Help us see Christ and his glory tonight. In your son's name, amen. Let me read from verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, A teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last And the last first. So the first part of this narrative we'll call the tragedy from verses 16 to 22. So this man who comes up to Jesus is presented as someone who knows the law. He, He knows the Ten Commandments. In Luke's account, he's called a ruler, which means that he's probably a ruler of the synagogue, even a member of the Sanhedrin. In any case, he's a religious leader. He's respectful of Jesus. He recognizes this rabbi's authority, that Jesus doesn't teach like the scribes or the other teachers of the law. In fact, in Mark's version, it says that the man ran up to him and knelt before him. Now that's not something that an arrogant religious Pharisee who would try to test Jesus, it's not something that um, yeah, an arrogant religious leader would do, even if it was for the sake of flattery. So there's sincerity to this young ruler and deference in calling Jesus teacher. Now, one thing to note here is that in all three accounts of this interaction between the rich young ruler and Jesus, what comes right before this is people bringing children to Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, since chapter 18, which is the previous chapter, Jesus has been explaining that unless you become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And you can see chapter 19, verse 14, says that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, those who are like children. In what sense? Well, those who are helpless, and those who are absolutely dependent on someone greater. So the rich young ruler here serves as a foil to childlike faith. Instead of someone who humbly depends on God alone, the young man is someone who relies on his riches and his good works. He's self-sufficient. He's like the Laodiceans in Revelation 3 who say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. But in that chapter, Jesus tells them, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So the rich young ruler, he doesn't fully see that he is spiritually bankrupt. (coughs) But he does sense that there's something missing in his life, something lacking. And knowing that Jesus is a distinguished rabbi and would have answers, He wants to ask Jesus this burning, longing question that he has. He says, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And now note that he asks this question because he doesn't have assurance of eternal life. He knows the law, but he still feels that there's something beyond the law that he has to do to obtain eternal life. It could be that he thought maybe a large sum of money for almsgiving would do it. This would secure and merit God's favor. There is a a scribal saying, a legislation that said, the amount you give for almsgiving, it's to be limited to one-fifth of your property. So maybe he thought he could just give more. Now, similar to Peter, who, if you were here for last week's sermon, in Matthew 18 the previous chapter, we learned that according to the scribes, forgiving someone three times was sufficient. And so Peter thought he was being generous by saying, shall I forgive seven times? So in a similar sense, the rich young ruler may have thought, maybe there's more that I can give. Or at least there must be something more I must do beyond the law. Some greater good, That I can do to have eternal life. And there it is. There there is the deception about living for God. Sometimes we think living for Jesus, living for Christian, uh, living the Christian life is, is doing more of something. You know, I must forgive more, I must obey more. I must serve more. I must give more. I must work more. I must study more. Well, living for Jesus is not just doing more. It's not just following rules. It's not just about using the resources and talents that you have. You can do all of those things and lose sight of the relationship. You can be consumed with doing more and more things, and it becomes no longer about Christ, no longer about pleasing God. It's become all about what you have done so that you start to feel entitled you feel like you earned something, like you deserve God's blessings, his favor. And when you don't get what you want from God, you feel like you've been cheated. <laughs> now, this young ruler has missed the point, and Jesus knows it. So in verse 17, Jesus says, Why do you ask me about what is good? And there is only one who is good. And Jesus knows that this young man, he doesn't truly understand what good is. He thinks that there's some good beyond what is written in God's perfectly good law so that he could have life. But Jesus is saying, if you want to know what good thing you need to do to have eternal life, don't dismiss God. Because he's the one who is absolutely good and he's the one who defines goodness. So Jesus is turning this young man's attention To God and his word. Because his perfect goodness is already revealed there. In the law. That's why he says next. If you would enter life. Keep the commandments. If you want life. You already know what to do. It's all there. Then how does the man respond? Verse 18. Which ones? Now, Which commandments do I need to keep? So that I can obtain eternal life? Now from that question, he's still not getting getting it. You know, presumably you keep all of them. But Jesus he he answers graciously and he says, It's the second half of the Ten Commandments, plus the second greatest commandment. Why doesn't Jesus say all of the Ten Commandments? Or why doesn't Jesus just say the first half of the Ten which focuses on God. Why bring up the commandments that focus on man's relationship with others? Well, it's because scripture makes clear, like in 1 John 4, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if the rich young ruler is not loving his neighbor as himself, he's not loving God. So Jesus says the second half of the Ten Commandments, but Jesus speaks to each individual. And he noticed that there's one commandment in there that Jesus leaves out. One commandment missing from the second half of the ten. Which one is it? Verse 18 and 19 say this, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the one that Jesus doesn't say is the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. There's something Jesus knows that is competing with his devotion to God, with this man's devotion to God. In verse 20, this man says, all these I have kept. And we don't have to doubt his sincerity. I think he really believed that he kept all of them. But he's like the older brother of the prodigal son who told his dad, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. This rich young ruler is like the Pharisees and scribes who think they're one of the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This young ruler is like the Pharisee who prayed, thank God that I'm not like this tax collector, that I don't cheat people, I'm not unjust, I'm not an adulterer. This rich young ruler's mora- morality, his sense of goodness was limited to external obedience. He, he didn't deal with the sinful thoughts and desires of his heart. And he, he knows, he knows that there's something missing. That's why he says in verse 20, what do I still lack? I mean, he wouldn't have asked this if he was confident that he was perfectly righteous. He doesn't have assurance of eternal life. He's missing something, and Jesus points it out for him. Verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. If you want to be wholeheartedly obedient to the will of God, Jesus says, give up all that you have. Love the poor, your neighbor, by giving your money to them. And then come and follow me. And Jesus knew that what was ruling this man's heart was not the will of God. It was this man's wealth. Now, this selling of all possessions and giving to the poor isn't what Jesus necessarily commands every disciple to do. Although, of course, we all ought to be willing to. But for this rich young ruler, Jesus targeted what he knew competed with allegiance to himself. And what Jesus asked of this young man isn't give up everything you have and just follow me. You know, Jesus made sure to tell him uh, that this man, this rich young man, wasn't going to come out in the red. You know, verse 21, Jesus promised him, you will have treasure in heaven. Uh, the, the young man should have responded the way Jesus tells in a parable on the kingdom of heaven, back in chapter 13 of Matthew. You know, the, the ruler should have re- been like the man who found a treasure hidden in the field, and what did this man in the parable do? It says that from joy over it, from joy over discovering this treasure, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field with joy, selling all so that he could have treasure in heaven, uh, so that this man in the parable could have treasure. But it wasn't so for the rich young ruler. Instead, verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. <clears throat> Luke's account says that this man became very sad. In Mark, he was saddened and he went away grieving. Now this is the tragedy. When presented with an offer of infinitely far greater worth, when presented with treasure in heaven, that you are unable to let go of that thing that you love more than God. Borrowing the words of Jim Elliott, missionary martyr, the great tragedies that you can't give up what you cannot even keep to gain that which you cannot lose. Here is a man who would rather gain the whole world and lose his soul. And this young man's sorrow was a worldly sorrow. It did not produce in him repentance. And he was sorrowful because he didn't get what he wanted. He wanted both eternal life and his wealth. But Jesus' words should have rung in his ears. You cannot serve God and money. And the, and the amazing thing is that in, in God's way of salvation, when when you do have Christ exclusively, you are given greater riches, ones that will not perish. But for him, in choosing earthly wealth over eternal life, he would lose both. And, of course, we, we don't know what ultimately happens to this rich young ruler. You know, did he ever confess? Did he ever repent? Did he ever turn to Jesus? But we don't know. But what we do know is that whatever controls and rules our heart, if it isn't the love of Christ, it, it's going to end in this. It's going to end in misery and sorrow. Think of those around us I mean, who are guided and, and even unknowingly controlled by their future plans to have a good career, to have certain close relationships, to have a boyfriend-girlfriend marriage, To keep a reputation, being sociable, likable, fun, even godly, even, um, yeah, being put together. And if any of these things is what rules someone's heart, it's not going to end with their happiness. It will end in sorrow because they will have rejected Christ. And so it is with with us that whatever has the power to grip our hearts, it will not make us happy or secure. But thankfully, the narrative does not end here. Hebrews 11, verse 6, as I wrote it in your notes, it says that whoever would draw near to God must believe that he rewards those who seek him. You know, for the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus not with faith, but wanting to rely on more works. But for those who come to God, he rewards those who seek him. And so we'll we'll see how this is so in the second part of the narrative, the reward. And as we work through the rest of our passage, we're going to identify some of these rewards to see why following Christ is far better than clinging to anything else. So verse 23, Jesus shifts gears. He now turns from the ruler to the disciples to teach The disciples. (laughs) Now, um, verse 23 says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, in fact, um, he he wants to make it absolutely clear, and so he gives them a word picture. It's a vivid one. That it would be easier for the largest animal in their day-to-day experience, which is a camel, be easier for a camel to go through the smallest opening that they know of, which is the eye of a needle. that'd be easier than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so his, his point is, is very clear it's, it's impossible and the disciples really feel it so much that they, they it says that they're greatly astonished because it's just not what they expect. When you look back In verse 13, how the disciples respond when people bring little children to Jesus, what did the disciples do then? The disciples rebuked those who brought children to Jesus. Now, these responses that the disciples give about children and then the rich man entering the kingdom of heaven, it shows that the disciples' understanding of those who receive God's favor is totally different and really the opposite from the way Jesus sees it in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> now, why do their disciples react so strongly to Jesus' teaching about a rich man? Well, it's because by all outward appearances, this, this rich man, he, he is also righteous. He, he's a righteous man who is a law keeper. And he is rich. The disciples, as well as the Jews of the day, saw wealth as evidence of God's blessing on their lives. So in the mind of the disciples, they're thinking, like, this guy is wealthy and he keeps the law. Obviously, he has the favor of God on his life. If anyone's going to enter the kingdom of God, it would be someone like him. You know, maybe something similar today would be <clears throat> when, sadly, you hear stories of people falling away from the faith. And even if they were reared by God-fearing parents who love Christ. And of all people, they would believe, right? You know, th- some of them even wrote good books on theology and Christian living. You know, they, they can be the, the son of so-and-so, a well-known evangelical pastor. They, they may have grown up at a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, healthy church, a church um, much like Lighthouse. If anyone would know the saving grace of God, it would be these guys. So the disciples, their response is understandable. Who then can be saved? And you know, if these guys can't be saved, I don't know who can. Verse 26, But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, we know that this doesn't mean that rich people can't enter the kingdom. I mean, we we see Joseph of Arimathea, we see Zacchaeus, they're wealthy, but God's grace is upon them. Jesus' point is that whether rich or poor, it's impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom apart from God. Now, on the one hand, this statement is, is sobering. I mean, it's humbling. Because it says that we are so powerless, so sinful, so even blind to our sin, that we can't do enough good to enter the kingdom of heaven. But on the other hand, this truth, if humbly received, is liberating. And it gives hope. Because not only does salvation become possible, he says that all things are possible. Living the Christian life becomes possible with God. And so I want to ask you, Beacon, in following Christ, what seems impossible to you? And you know, does it feel impossible to be free from a certain sin, from a certain idol? Now, out of the many rewards that we get to receive in following Christ, one of them is freedom from idolatry. Freedom from sins and cravings. Freedom from another master. A cruel and deceitful master that will give you the pleasure and comfort and happiness you like, but it's really bait and switch. Those things cost more than you think. They are fleeting and never last as long as you'd like. And they are far inferior to the real thing. And they're not the endless, all-satisfying pleasure and happiness and comfort that you were created for and that only God can give. So what is that thing for you? If Jesus were to say, if you would be perfect, go and do this, what might that be? Is there anything that would make you sorrowful to give up for Christ? You know, what do you feel seems impossible to do in following Him? Seems impossible to forgive this person who has hurt you deeply. Seems impossible to be finally free from lust and porn. It seems impossible to not give in to same-sex attraction and instead pursue holiness. It seems impossible to be content if you don't get into med school or the grad program that you want to get to, what you worked so hard for. On the other hand, it seems impossible to feel motivated to study day after day when you're struggling to see the point in it seems impossible to not feel anxious about talking to peers and people you don't know. And it seems impossible to really love this person who, honestly, you find a bit annoying and someone that you just, for whatever reason, don't click with. <coughs> and it seems impossible to trust God when this happens. <coughs> now, when you follow Jesus... <coughs> This, this truth, this statement that with God all things are possible. When you follow Christ, your life can change. You can actually not be controlled by these sins. Whether it's bitterness, sexual sin, discontentment, laziness, anxiety, fear, anger. You can be more like Christ. Do you believe? Do you believe that if God is for you, Who can be against you? Now, we move on verse 27. Peter and the disciples, unlike the rich man who couldn't give up his possessions, these disciples give up everything and they follow Christ. And so Peter can't help but respond, well, what is there for us? You know, what then will we have? And Jesus is kind and doesn't say, Peter, you you don't need to worry about that. Just trust me and follow me. Although he probably could have said that. Jesus doesn't give a direct rebuke either. Instead, Jesus actually answers Peter's question and says that there will be a reward. And Jesus, verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in short, that there is a special place for the apostles in the kingdom. They'll have a position of authority ruling their ethnic people. They're last right now, but they'll enjoy privileges of prominence later. <clears throat> but the point here is that we can learn from this that there are specific rewards individually tailored for his people So not only for the apostles, it's really for anyone who follows Christ. That's why he says in verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now what Jesus had been teaching the disciples personally in the final days and weeks as he goes up to Jerusalem, Jesus had been teaching the upside down nature of the kingdom there will be a role reversal verse 30 many who are first will be last and the last first so in this life many who are considered great and prominent and self-sufficient in this world will end up being last but those who have humble childlike faith will be exalted at the proper time even if 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 not in this lifetime But um, when you read the other Gospels besides Matthew, it becomes clear that although riches are to be enjoyed primarily in heaven, those riches are to be enjoyed now. Their rewards are not exclusive to the future. That's why Mark says that those who've left all these possessions, all these relationships will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. At this time. <clears throat> so the rich young ruler, he didn't have eyes to see, he didn't properly weigh the riches that he possessed with the riches that came from Christ. <clears throat> so what is it that you find too costly to give up in following Christ and that you, you just can't believe that you will receive a hundredfold. I think we can be like the disciples who heard from Jesus that he'll suffer and die, and in three days he'll rise. But the disciples respond poorly each time. And it's almost as if the disciples didn't hear Jesus say, in three days he will rise. And, and maybe, well, they heard it, but it, does ju- it doesn't register to them. And is that how it is with us? Jesus says, you will have treasure in heaven. You will receive a hundredfold. You will inherit eternal life. But for whatever reason, it's not computing. It's almost as if we're not really hearing that. And to be sure, when Jesus says that, there will be reward. It's not, this isn't the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It's not, you know, follow Jesus and he'll make you super rich. This is Matthew 6. You know, when if you seek first the kingdom of God that he will provide for you what you need, food and clothing. And it's hard for us to to believe this, but this is Jesus' point. The Christian life is worth it. Following him is far better than what we cling to for ourselves. (laughs) What you give up for Christ doesn't compare to what you will receive both now and in heaven. And the reward that you get... you get it in ways that you might not expect. So, it's not as if you give, for example, $100 to the church and you get $10,000 from God. Now, we see three rewards um, that I put in your notes. First is freedom from idolatry. (laughs) Now, Now, these rewards are somewhat unexpected. For example... You know, if you would give up your idol to follow Christ, would you expect a reward to be freedom from that idolatry? And we saw money being an example here. We know that money can be enslaving. You have some, you want more. You want to maintain what you have. We know that. We understand that. But if you're willing to give that up, money can serve others. It can bless others. And you'll be happier knowing that. You're not controlled by it. You'll be happier knowing it's actually helping other people, meeting their needs, real hunger and thirst, advancing the cause of Christ in missions. You'll know what what Jesus has said. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, second reward that is unexpected, church family. You would expect, for example, that if you said no to same-sex attraction and committed to following Christ which for someone like Sam Alberry, if you've read any of his books, it it may possibly mean not having a family of your own. Would you expect that that if you followed Christ in this way, that you would know the riches of relationships with your family in Christ? (laughs) And that is not an easy thing to say that Jesus says here, that you may lose some relationships for Christ. But he himself says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You gain family when you follow Christ. Wherever you go, whatever city, country, island, or village you're in, if there are believers there, you have family. And if you're here with us at Lighthouse... We are each other's. We are the family. And you have mothers and fathers here. You have older brothers and older sisters here. You have younger siblings. And the reward is a hundredfold. It's really more than that. And family means you rely on them. You lean into them. And the older ones have wisdom to offer. They, They want to look out for you. The younger ones need you guys to be examples and for you to care for them. And as family, we each have a part to play and we have an unbreakable bond because of the blood of Christ. Now, the third reward to point out from this narrative, would you expect this? A, A close relationship with God. You know, this whole narrative really has been about eternal life. And that's how this section, that's how uh, it bookends this portion of the narrative. Verse 16, eternal life is what the rich young ruler wanted to have by his own deeds. And verse 29, that's what Peter and the disciples and and everyone who follows Christ will have. Because they'll be given it. And this is ultimately what matters because eternal life... It is an ever-deepening, rich, and satisfying relationship with our God. You find delight in that relationship with Him. You you feel close. Your, Your heart is warmed. It is not stale. It is not distant. You know God more and more. You take comfort in being known that He knows you and your thoughts from afar, your worries, your desires, your delights, your sadness, your anger, your sins, but he doesn't leave you or he's not disgusted at you. He, he knows all of those thoughts and he loves you and he wants what's best for you. And he will work in you to make you happy and holy in him. This relationship is one where you know true peace. I mean, there are relationships in our lives that <clears throat> can make us feel tense, anxious, unsettled, uncomfortable, uncomfortable but with God when you think of Christ and his loveliness that relationship it humbles you you are corrected when you err you are grateful you are hopeful you are at peace and you are energized to love <coughs> Now think about the relationships in your life and I'm sure that we all know what it means or what it feels like to long for closeness with people you care about, people you enjoy being with, (coughs) you want to be known and cared for by them, now how much more ought we to desire closeness then with our Savior? So these are some rewards, freedom from idolatry, your church family, a closer relationship with him. And we get to enjoy this in the present age, so much more in the coming age. <clears throat> and as I wrap this up, you know, I've heard it said from older folks, and I'm sure you've heard this too, and I, I believe it to be true, that, that even after decades and decades of marriage, you know, an older couple, they, they say that they're still learning they're still knowing their wife or their husband. You're still discovering something new about the other person. You're still finding new delights in your, in your best earthly friend. And how much more so in our relationship with Christ? We'll always be learning, we'll always be knowing Him, we'll always find fresh delight. In him, we'll always find new expressions, new evidences of his loveliness. And beacon, so I want to urge you shall we not endeavor to enjoy him, enjoy Christ and his riches more and more as we follow him? And let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. God we know that with man it is impossible to be saved, to live for you. Help us to feel that. And help us to know and feel that God with God, with you, all things are possible. And so help us now, a means of grace is through our church family, through brothers and sisters. Uh, through our small groups. And so, God, would you search our hearts? Help us know where we fall short and help us to know true joy by turning from these things and earnestly following after Christ. In your son's name we pray. Amen.